Hello, everyone. Baby girls, dudes, whoever's asses out there. Let me make this a bit high. I'm going on to solid ground. Thank you so much. Well, good to be together. Lovely to be here. Uh, gee, I don't know about you guys. This, this flu has battered us, eh? Yeah, the schools have been decimated, the family's been a little decimated, but we're starting to come through on the other side, and it's, uh, it's good to be able to breathe again and, and uh, not cough so much at night, but uh, good to be back with you guys. Um, it's good to be here today. It's good to be here this morning. It's good to be with God's people in God's presence. You know, when we gather together like this as Christ followers, we sing. It's part of what we do as Christ followers. When we get together, we want to celebrate God. We want to express how much we love Him. We want to express what He means to us. We want to express our hopes and our needs and our desires before God. And then then we come before God's Word because we're asking God to transform us. We're asking God to teach us, to reveal Himself to us, to align our lives with who He is and what He's doing. And then we, we hang out, we connect because so much of the life of God we experience through each other. The blessing of God, the encouragement of God, the companionship that God brings us, we, we give that to each other as a, as a family of Christ followers. So it's good to be here today. Uh, you would know if you've been with us, we're working through 2 Corinthians. You might be feeling a little bit, oh, it's week nine of 2 Corinthians that we're in. I am absolutely loving the series. I don't know how you're feeling. I'm absolutely loving it. It's such a treat. We, all together this year, 2023, you would have spent 23 weeks going through the book of 2 Corinthians. And at the moment, we've divided it up into like sub-series. We're in the first sub-series, and it's all about God's strength and our weakness. We're looking at Paul, the Apostle Paul, the, the sent one, sent from God to plant churches, to go into the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to proclaim the gospel. And he's planted these churches, and we're seeing that in his life, Although there seems to be so much weakness and there's so much struggle and trial and heartache that actually God's strength is seen in the midst of his pain and his difficulty. And so this first sub-series, we're unpacking this God's strength in our weakness. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, that there's strength for you even in your weakness. So altogether, 12 weeks, we're going to be looking at this God's strength in our weakness. We're in week nine, and then this is the longest one. The next, the next sub-series is only four weeks and then seven weeks, and then we would have made our way through the whole of two Corinthians. Now, this uh, first sub-series, as we've been looking to, through two Corinthians, we're seeing that Paul's weakness has been a stumbling block for the Corinthians, for the church in Corinth. I mean, I think the church in Corinth isn't that dissimilar to the church in Cape Town, maybe even this church. The Corinthians are a people that valued strength, They valued conquest, status, influence, gain, material wealth. They valued the good life. For them, the the desire for a good life was was what consumed their minds. And even following Jesus, this is meant to bring the good life. And so they really struggled with Paul's suffering. They couldn't make sense. I mean, hey, we're following God. We want the good life. But we're looking at you and we're thinking, it doesn't look so good in the context of what culture is telling us is so important. And one of the things I'm loving about 2 Corinthians is also we're getting to know Paul. I mean, Paul is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. 
You know, the, two, the te- New Testament is made up of a bunch of gospels, historical records, and letters that are written inspired by people, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that has now been put together for us and is God's word, authoritative over his life. Are we getting to know this guy, Paul, who under the inspiration of the Spirit has written so much of the New Testament? And as we get to know Paul and the impact that the Gospels had on his life, on his thinking, on his motives, as we see what the Holy Spirit's doing in him, we're starting to get a sense of what the Holy Spirit is doing and wants to do in us. As we look at his life, we're being transformed. That's the thing about the Bible. The more you read the Bible, you think you're reading the Bible, but actually the Bible's reading you. That you're being changed and transformed as God's Word goes through us. So what we're going to do today, so we're going to make our way through today's text, and I want to dig a little deeper in the impact that the Gospels had on Paul's life. Because as we look at that, as I said, we're going to be transformed ourselves. So we're going to focus on three things. One, Paul explains to this church in Corinth what a, what a praiseworthy life of following Jesus looks like. If you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus in a praiseworthy way, well, Paul gives us three clues to what that could look like. And then we're going to look at two massive impacts the gospel's had on him. That when the gospel moves us, the gospel will move you to ministry, and the gospel will redefine all your relationships. And we'll make some application as we go. Can I pray for us? We're going to get stuck in. God, we, we thank you for the power of your word to transform us. That as we read your word, as we dig into your word, as we um, bring ourselves under the authority of the word that we're changed and transformed. And that's what we want, God. I pray this morning as we, as I speak, as I unpack your word, as your word speaks to people, that, that we would be transformed. We want to say yes to your word. Yes to your transformation in our lives. Yes to being more like you. God, we say yes to your help and your companionship in life. We need you, God. We need your strength. We need your truth. Amen. Okay, let me, let me start reading. 2 Corinthians 5. I've gone back into last week just for one verse for some context. It says, verse 10 in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seats of Christ so that each of us so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. We're going to keep reading, but I'm just going to pause there and make some comments. So by now in week nine, as I've said, we know that the relationships between Paul and the guys that he's ministering and the church are strained, to say the least. Paul's been sidelined in the church that he planted. I mean, he's the guy who first preached the gospel, who these, gathered these believers, who started this church, and he's being sidelined by so-called super apostles, ministers that have come into the church that are fulfilling everything that the Corinthians want to see in a, in a leader, someone who's influential and successful and popular and not suffering and experiencing the good life. And they're looking at this, and they're looking at Paul, and actually Paul's losing influence. 
And so Paul is fighting for his influence back, not because he wants to be important and esteemed, but he's fighting for the truth of the gospel to be at the center of the Corinthian church. He's fighting for his influence back because he's concerned about the truth that's being preached and put on display in the church. And so he's writing and he's contending for this truth. He's contending for relationship with them. And actually, what he writes about here, he tells us, verse 12. This is his objective in what he's writing. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. And then it also goes on to say, and so that you can give an answer to those who only see what's on the outside, not what's in the heart. So Paul's saying to them, guys, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not writing here so that you'll think I'm the best. I'm not wanting to reintroduce myself to you all over again. What I want you to do is understand what the gospel is doing in me. I want you to understand how I'm being shaped and formed by the gospel because when you see that, it's going to make a lot more sense. Life is going to make a lot more sense. But more than that, he, he, he wants them to take pride in his life. He wants them to understand that this is the work of the gospel that he's putting on display. But he also wants to give them ammunition. He wants to help them, you know, give an answer to these super apostles that are coming in and accusing him and sidelining him. He wants to, he wants to bulk them up so that they can stand for truth themselves. And so I want to make three quick observations around how Paul conducts himself as a Christ follower in a way that they can take pride in. You know, as Christ followers, we aspire to please God, right? Yeah. We, we want to do right by God. We want to do right by people. We want to, want to bring glory to God. We want to finish the race as strong as we've started the race. I mean, that's the desire of our heart. Well, here's three ways that we can follow Jesus in a way that's praiseworthy, Paul says, I want you to take pride in my followership of Jesus. Well, this is what it looks like. Three ways we can follow Jesus that is praiseworthy. Firstly, live with a healthy fear of the Lord. Live with a healthy fear of the Lord. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. See, Paul knows that God is his ultimate judge. That one day he's going to stand before God and the only thing he's going to be able to bring is Jesus. Jesus is his only hope. But more than that, Jesus is also going to be the assessor of his life, how he's lived his life, what he's done with his life, whether good or bad. And it's not, an, it's not a moment of, am I going to be saved or am I not going to be saved? But how have I leveraged my life for the glory of God? So realizing all this, Paul lives with this reverence, with this healthy respect for God. He doesn't fear God as, as this kind of subjective fear. No, no, it's a healthy reverence. It's an understanding that God is special, that he's sovereign, that he's transcendent, that he calls us into something. You know that not all fear is bad, right? I mean, healthy fear makes you wear a seatbelt when you're driving in a car. You know, unhealthy fear would be never getting in a car in the first place because you're afraid, you're afraid that something could go wrong. That's an unhealthy fear, but Paul has a healthy fear of God. And we ought to cultivate a healthy fear of God even in our own lives. And remember, it's not about living in fear that, you know, will I merit God's favor? You know, will God condemn me? No, no, that's not the fear we're talking about here. He's saying, I'm allowing the truth of who God is, the love of Christ, the power of the gospel to so impact my life that I'm living to persuade others to experience this love for themselves. 
And he, he knows that one day he's going to stand before God. So, so if you want to know how to live a praiseworthy life and following Jesus, cultivate a healthy fear of God. Secondly, he says, I live with a clear conscience before people and God. He says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. He's living with integrity. For Paul, his outer life is the same as his inner life. His inner life is reflected in his outer life. He's saying, look at my life. Look at what I do. Look at how I live. Look at what I say. Look at how I think. I'm not a mystery. I don't live a double life. It's not complicated to see what I'm all about. I am who I am. What you see is what you get. It's what's happening. And who I am is plain to God. I live my whole life in view of God. And I live my whole life in view of you. And I hope it's plain for you to see. So live a life of integrity. And then, and then thirdly, how to live a, what a praiseworthy life of following Jesus looks like. He says he overcomes the baseless criticism of people. He says if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are right in our mind, it is for you. He's obviously someone's, t- people are criticizing Paul and saying he's out of his mind. Now, I don't know exactly what they're referring to. I don't think we can know for sure, but the meaning of the text is clear. I mean, some people say that, you know, Paul in in Corinthians, he says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. You know, maybe he speaks in tongues so much that people are thinking, this guy's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's, you know, he's, uh, we can't make sense of him. Maybe it's the nature of his teaching and his life. They listen to what he's teaching. They're looking at their life and they're thinking, this guy is crazy. This can't be the good life. This can't be what God has for us. He's crazy. He's absurd. In Acts 26, there's a time when Paul's standing before Governor Festus, and he's explaining how he's come from from his Jewish roots and how he sees Christ as the fulfillment as the Messiah, and Festus says to him, you're out of your mind, you're crazy, what you're believing is absurd. Now, let's always remember, though, what happened to my water? Here we go. We've got to remember, though, is Jesus himself was accused of being out of his mind by his family. In Mark chapter 3, they go, into, they go into a house and it says there were so many people that needed to be ministered to that they didn't even have time to eat or drink. <laughs> and Jesus' family said, this is crazy. <laughs> Who does this guy think he is? No time to eat because he's so needed. He's out of his mind. No, no. Paul's saying to them, guys, it doesn't matter whether people think I'm out of my mind or whether I'm in my right mind. Whatever I do, I'm doing for God and I'm doing for you. That's how I'm living my life. Okay, I, I want to pause for a moment. You know, normally in messages like this, we take time to reflect at the end, but I, I want to build in a moment of reflection right now. Have you ever wondered, do you ever wonder, how am I doing at following Jesus? <laughs> Is it praiseworthy? Could people take pride? Paul's saying, I want you to take pride in my life. Could people take pride in the way we follow Jesus now? You can feel the condemnation fall like a blanket on the room. We can all do better. <laughs> okay, we, we get that. We, we're not here. There's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. But I think it's good for us from time to time to have honest reflection on our lives. And I want to do it in these three areas. Do you live with a healthy fear of God? Do you live with a clear conscience before people and God? Are you overcoming the baseless criticism of people? I think about living with a healthy fear of God. I mean, how do you think of God? Christ, I'm speaking to Christ followers in the room. Has God become some kind of like a cosmic butler that exists to 
give you the desires of your heart, to give you the desires of culture, to fulfill everything that you need? Is he like a big brother that just exists to bail you out and make you feel better and walk with you through difficult times? I mean, those are all true. God does those things, but that is, is that who he's become? Or is, do you still fear God? Do you still see him as sovereign, as authoritative, as Lord, as judge, as the assessor of your life and your ministry and what you do with your life? Are you cultivating that healthy fear of God? What about overcoming baseless criticism? You know, it's easy for us to back off following Jesus in the face of criticism. You know, maybe it's your view of sex. It's just outrageous. People think you're crazy. It's outrageous. They criticize you for it. They laugh at you about it, and it can cause you to back off. Back off on following Jesus. Back off on holding to that ethic. No, no, I'm going to just go with what's, what's happening. Maybe how you conduct your relationships with people how you seek to be in right relationship with people, how you seek to forg- you want to forgive people that have hurt you, how you treat people with fairness. Maybe people criticize you for that. It's crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you treat that person like that? Surely that person, you must just write them off. You know, in the face of these criticisms and harshness, we can start to back off on, on a praiseworthy life of following Jesus. We can start to let go of some of our convictions. Maybe people don't understand your limits around drinking. Or how you steward your resources and you get criticized for it. Don't back off. Overcome those criticisms. Now, I want to drill a little deeper on the second one. Living with a clear conscience. Now, I want to speak especially to you if you've been following Jesus for a long time. It's not often we speak to the guys. If you've been following Jesus for a decade or decades, I want to speak especially to you for a moment. I mean, I've been, I don't know, how long have I, what year are we in now? I've been following Jesus for long. Yo, I'm old. Like almost 30 years. And I found recently, <laughs> bro, you're going to be gray like this soon. <laughs> um, no, you won't. These people are so lovely to lead. You'll be fine. I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable with you for a moment. I have found recently in my spiritual life as I was preparing for this message that I, I feel like sometimes I've let go of some of the convictions I've held as a Christ follower. Things that I had settled in God years and years ago, I've started to compromise on and let go of. Unconsciously. Thinking about something like regular committed giving. There was a time in my life when I settled the idea of regular committed giving. This is God's blessing for me. This is how God shapes my affections. This is how God calls me to trust Him. I'm going to be honest. Recently, it's not that easy to just push EFT pay. And actually, what's happened in us is that, you know, with all the, our, um, the, the bond, you know, the bond has gone up, eh, guys? Phew. And so we, we have the EFT setting up, and once or twice the EFT has bounced, there wasn't enough money in that account. We didn't put the money in the right places. And, and it didn't bother me that much. I thought, ah, you know, it's not so bad. <laughs> didn't do it on purpose, but hey, it happened. I can think of other things to do with this money anyway. It's, it's weird. I've settled this in my life. This is a conviction that God has has taught me that I want to give the first portion of all that I have to the glory of God, to honor Him, to the furtherance of His kingdom. Yet, it seems that I don't hold that conviction as tightly as I used to. 
I'm tempted to let that slide. You know that maturity doesn't just come with time. Maturity and following Jesus just doesn't come with time. In fact, sometimes time can erode our maturity. Or that actually that time can cause us to lose ground, to entertain sin, to compromise. I mean, I can think of a host of things. What about the things that you let yourself watch on TV or whatever? You know, there can be a time in your life as a Christ follower where you settled some stuff. But actually over time, you know, it's just maybe the kind of jokes that you tell or the language we use. Now, I've noticed this thing with Christ followers. The longer you follow Jesus, the more like people feel like it's, cool to, it's okay to swear or whatever because it's almost like oh, swearing such a small thing, man. We don't get caught up in those little things. But it's, it's weird because actually the Bible's pretty clear on some of its teaching there, but we, we just let that stuff go. I mean, are you fighting for healthy relationships with people? Are you offering forgiveness to those who are hurting you? Because actually it's... It's something that we could be, have really been good at at a time in our lives, but actually over time, life batters us and life bruises us, and it happens over and over, and we just start, we just start to back off. Are you as committed to being here with Christ followers, gathering together weekly, serving people in the local church, bringing your life to bear on the forward movement of the gospel and people around you? There may have been a time in your life where you were committed to this thing, but over time, Life gets hectic, life gets busy, life gets full, demands happen. What about marriage? It's a tough one. We start out with the best of intentions. But man, over time, things can get tough. We can start to back off. Do we still want to finish the race like we started the race? I think for some of us as Christ followers, speaking even for myself, I need to, I need to take seriously these things I've settled in God years ago and make sure it's, it's almost like exercise. The Bible says, you know, if we're not exercising these convictions, we're going to get spiritually lazy and flabby and it's, it gets harder over time to lose that weight. I know all about it. <laughs> Running, yeah. But I think for us as Christ followers, mature Christ followers, it's good for us just to to time and again, take a step back. Say, are you cultivating a healthy fear of the Lord in your life? Do you still see God as high and lifted up? Are you overcoming the criticisms of people? Are you being overly shaped by the voices around you? Are you living with integrity? Are you maintaining the convictions that God and you have settled in time gone by? It's great for us to renew that. Okay, let me move on. Let me keep reading. We're going to see how the gospel has impacted Paul. It says, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The gospel moves us to ministry. The gospel moves us to serve others. The gospel moves us to do good to others. I don't know if you've ever been swept up in a crowd. Have you ever been somewhere where the crowd was so massive and so thick that you just got swept along and there was nothing you could do about it? It happened to us in Japan. It was rush hour. We got on the, we got on the tube or the train and, and we were with our kids. And I don't know if you've seen those clips where 
where they pay people to shove people on the train, just to stuff. Even, I mean, sardines would have panicked in that kind of situation. I mean, we could not move. I couldn't even take my phone out my pocket to take a photo. Heidi wasn't even holding the kids. They were just pressed up against us. There's no, like, no, it was frightening. And then you get to the station and the door opens and it's like a flood. Woof, everyone just bails out. Woof. And then people walk off and then everyone just goes back in. Woof. Nothing you can do. Nothing, you, you just swept along by this crowd. That's what Paul is talking about when he says Christ's love compels us. He's saying, I'm, I'm so changed by Christ's love that I'm carried along by the love of Christ like I would be carried along by a crowd, irresistible to help myself. He doesn't have an option. He's hemmed in. He's constrained. He's like a prisoner to the love of Christ that is just carrying him along. Do you want to understand how the gospel has impacted Paul's life? And the impact of the, of the gospel, it's serving others. The shape of Christ's love, the other-centered nature of the love of Christ, has so transformed Paul's life that he can no longer live for himself. He lives to please God. And this no longer living for himself, this living to please God, living to please the one who died for him and was raised for him, that's what carries him along, this other-centeredness. I want to take a quick sidebar here. Let me change tack for a second because I think it's important. I just want to speak quickly to this idea. What does Paul mean when he says, one died for all and therefore all died? One died for all, therefore all died. Because there, there is this teaching, a false teaching called a universalism, which is the wrong belief that, that because it says Christ died for everyone, that everyone will be saved, that everyone will be automatically saved, that if Christ died for everyone, therefore everyone died and everyone will be saved. That's not what Paul's teaching here. What Paul's speaking about when he says Christ died for all, he's speaking about the scope of the gospel, that no one is excluded from the possibility of salvation. Michael Eaton, he, helpfully, uh, he helps us understand this by saying, uh, look at this from God's perspective. The price for sin for every person has been fully paid. Redemption has been bought. Reconciliation with God is possible for all. There is no one beyond the scope of salvation. Hey, maybe you're sitting here and you're not yet a Christ follower. Maybe you're thinking, ooh, everyone looks so good. I saw them singing. Oof. These people are so Christian. God couldn't love me. I want to tell you that no one, well, first of all, the people around you are not that good. <laughs> I know them, and I'm one of them. <laughs> so don't be alarmed. Don't be fooled. But, but the truth is, there is no one beyond the scope of God's love. The price for salvation has been paid. But it's not automatic. We have to respond and receive the price paid for reconciliation with God. I mean, the text, it, it says, for Christ, Christ died. What does it say? Where are we here? He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. It's verse, verse 15. It's saying that there's a receiving of the death of Christ, that we die with Christ 
and we start to live for Him. There's this transformation as we receive the gospel. Maybe today is the day of salvation for you, where you receive the gospel. The price has been paid. It's yours to take. So I've been speaking about the gospel moves us to ministry. The self-focused life is incompatible with the gospel. You know that Christ follows? I mean, uh, Barnett says it like this. He says, egocentricity has given way to Christocentricity. That actually have a Christ follower, it's incompatible with our true nature to live for ourselves. But actually, the gospel moves us to ministry. The gospel moves us to serve. The shape of the gospel is outward, other-centered, seeking the good of others. Remember, Paul's letting them into his heart here. He's trying to help them understand the impact that the love of God and the gospel, the good news about Jesus has on our lives. He's saying, I live the way I do. I do things the way I do because I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Jesus. That's why. I've been swept up. I've been compelled. I've been captured by the love of Christ. I mean, I don't know what other motivation Paul could have to suffer the way he did. If you know Paul, if you've read the Bible, read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, or is it 2 Corinthians 11, where he lists all his suffering. Why would Paul fight for these relationships with this church? I mean, why wouldn't he just let the super apostles do their thing? Why would he want to argue? Why would he seek reconciliation? Why would he go after them? Why would he put himself through all this? Because the love of Christ compels him to love and serve others. Why do we contend for relationships, guys? Why do we serve on Sundays? Why do we do the things we do? What motivates us? What characterizes our life? The love of Christ. This call to serve and to love others. The start of the week, I had all the life group leaders together for a gathering. And uh, we gathered together. And one of the challenges I put out to them, I said, guys, trust God for this agape, this unconditional love for both God and the people in your group. And I think it's right for us as Christ followers to from time to time pray and say, God, I need a fresh revelation of Christ's love that will so capture and transform me, make me other-centered, curve my life away from myself toward others as I glimpse the love of Christ. And so I want to pray for us right now. Let's pray right where we are. If you're a Christ follower, I want to ask you to join me now and in the next few weeks and days and occasionally to pray. Father, we are, we are saved because of your love. Because you lived not only for yourself but for us. That you gave yourself to win us back to you. We want the truth of that and the power of that to be so evident in our lives. God, where we have grown cold or lost a grasp of or understanding of the immensity of your love for us, God, that you would renew that in us. I pray, God, that you just speak to us, that in, in life and in different ways and in moments of prayer or in moments of anything, God, that we would have fresh revelation of your love that your love would stir within us, that the love that you have for us would stir in us a love for others. God, that you would cause us to live not for ourselves, but for you. That's the power of the gospel. God, we need you. 
Give us love, fresh love, revelation of love. We need you, God. Amen. I'm not going to be too much longer, don't worry. Paul, there's, there's one more massive impact of the gospel that I want to speak to us about, and it's this. The gospel redefines our relationships. Remember, Paul's speaking about, guys, why am I the way I am? What am I doing? Why do I do the things I do? Well, it's because the gospel has changed me. And one of the ways the gospel's changed me, well, one, I move to minister, I move to serve, I live not for myself, I live for others, but also my relationships have been completely redefined because of Jesus. It says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Who's ever remembered that as a memory verse? What a great verse, verse 17. Commit that one to memory. Paul's saying that, guys, I don't make superficial judgments anymore like I used to. You know, Paul's world was full of divides, full of divides, worldly points of views, worldly categories, worldly values, labels, ideas that separated people. And not that different from ours, probably nationality, religion, socioeconomic status. I mean, these were ideas and labels, worldly point of views that separated people radically. But then you love love the language there that he says in verse 16, so from now on, Jesus changes things. It used to be like that, but from now on, I don't regard people from a worldly point of view anymore. When Jesus gets a hold of our lives... Our relationships shift radically. And Paul's reference here is his relationship with Jesus. I mean, that's been the radical shift for him. That's, that's kind of been the preeminent shift before all the others. Think about when, when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was traveling to a town and he, he met Jesus. And at that moment, Paul was a devout Jew. And being a devout Jew, he, he, he kept his distance from Gentiles Non-Jews, they were unclean, ceremoniously unclean. They were outsiders. He avoided them. When he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he himself, Paul, was the arch enemy of Christ followers. He was the one who was killing, persecuting, and imprisoning Christ followers as quickly as he could. Jesus was nothing more than a blaspheming troublemaker who was obviously cursed because he ended up hanging on a tree. I mean, that was the status, his relationships, that was the status of his relationships. Now think about the Paul we encounter and read about in the scriptures. There's been a radical shift from now on. Jesus went from being a blasphemer to Messiah. Gentile believers went from being outsiders and unclean to his brothers and sisters, the closest relations he had in this world. And his fellow Jews became outsiders in need of salvation. There's a radical redefining of relationships when the gospel gets a hold of our life. He goes a little deeper. He says, when someone comes to Christ, they are completely remade. They're a new creation. One set of relationships is completely replaced by another. They're remade. They're re positioned. It's quite staggering. The gospel causes us to see people differently and relate to people differently. Our position with people changes radically. People who don't know God, 
who don't yet know Jesus, they, sim- they stop simply being co-workers, customers, employees, enemies, friends. They become people created in the image of God who he loves and who he longs to restore to relationship with himself. Our relationship with them changes. They're not just people. They're not just out there. Friends, enemies, no, they're people God loves. And I relate to them differently. I want to serve them. I want to let them know. I want to persuade them around the love of God. I remember I went to Mannenberg a few weeks ago with Sandra and Renee. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Mannenberg. I've been a few times, and I'm not going to lie. Every time I go, it's, it's nerve-wracking. I get a little nervous getting closer to Mannenberg. And we were sitting in the lounge. If you don't know, I can't explain Mannenberg. Mannenberg, I have a way of of describing it that I I can't do in church. But (laughs) sometimes I think if you want to see the very worst that apartheid ever produced in this country, the most brokenness, you go visit Mannenberg. It is. And so I went with them and I sat there and... And we were praying before we went out, and as we always do, the, the one thing they shared, which always has just impacted me so deeply, they said, God, help us when we go out there, not to see gangsters, but to see men and women that you love. Man, that was, you'd think I'd know that, right? <laughs> but when we come to Christ, our relationships completely change. People are not gangsters. People are made in the image of God. I want to persuade them around his love and his hope. Well, and in Christ followers, our fellow believers, so in Christ, our fellow believers, you know, we, we don't value fellow believers anymore based on education, race, financial means, position in society, language or culture, or what they can do for us. What matters most is Christ, that we have more in common with a Christ follower, no matter how different they are to us in worldly categories. Those worldly categories are decimated in Christ. I was chatting to an Afrikaner the other day, and he shared some of his story. And he was saying he, he had this radical experience with the Lord that changed his relationships with people forever, that he, he grew up in apartheid. And he was in, very indifferent to people of other races. And he was working on a farm. He was working in a vineyard. He loved wine. He loved working in the farm. He got extra cash uh, in holidays, and he was working... And he was in the vineyard, and he, and he felt like God encountered him in a moment. And God said to him, you can enjoy the produce of this hard ground, but you can't enjoy people made in my image. He said his life was radically changed in that moment. He said, for the first time in my life, I realized I'm racist. You know, you can be a Christ follower and Racist. It's not a condemnation of your whole life. He grew up believing that something as superficial as skin pigmentation dictates the value of someone. This is what we've been taught. This is what we've lived in in South Africa. And he says, from that day on, I've been trusting God to help you to see more clearly and to unteach me how to relate to all people. Guys, the gospel radically changes and redefines our relationships with people. And we need to let God have his way in us. On what basis do we treat or value people? I'm talking to us as a church, you. Like, what do you see when you first meet someone? What are they wearing? Now, I'm normally in flip-flops. It's the, I've worn shoes every day this week. It's how cold it's been. It's probably the first time in 10 years. 
where they grew up, where they went to school, what they know, who they know. Maybe we, you know, how do we decide who to help or who to be kind to? Maybe we, we're more kind to people if we know that they could actually do us a favor down the line. Or, you know, who, how do we decide who deserves our grace and our mercy and our friendship and our kindness and our prayers? And it's true, sometimes we overvalue people. Sometimes we undervalue people. I'm going to land with this. I know that I've hardly got through the whole text, but I don't know. Mark, you can deal with that later. <laughs> Something that I think helps a Western mindset. Sometimes as Christ followers, we think, hey, I've come to Jesus. Now it's Christ living in me. Christ's come to live in my heart. There's some element of truth to that, but it's pretty shallow. And kind of now Christ comes down and, and now lives within our values and our worldview and our relationships. No, no, no. I think what the Bible teaches is that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're in Christ. He doesn't come down to live in us. He takes us to live with him. And he repositions us. And everything changes. From now on, our relationships are other how we see people, how we love people, how we judge people, how we serve people is forever changed. We are in Christ to be part of a much bigger story. I'm going to stop. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, as we, as we hear your word preached, we pray that what we read would be true of us and that we would know you the way we read about in the scriptures. And so, God, that you would take our responses today and our prayers and our requests and, God, that you would answer and honor them. God, that you would cause us to follow you in a way that's praiseworthy. That you would help us, God, to settle some stuff, to move on, to be faithful and true to how we started this race, that we would finish strong. Maybe you're here and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. You know, Jesus changes everything. We're still the same. We've got the same personality. We've got the same life circumstances. But our spirit, our heart is remade, renewed. We're reconnected with our creating Father, and it changes everything. The affections of our hearts. You can put your faith in Jesus this morning. You can simply pray a prayer right where you are. You can pray it right now. I invite you to pray it under your breath. You can simply just pray, God, I recognize my need for you. God, I recognize my need for you. I recognize, God, that, that there is a gap between us, that, that there is sin, that my life, the way I've lived, has, has separated us. But, God, I also see that in Jesus, you've made a way for me to be reconciled with you that you've dealt with sin, you've dealt with my sin. And if I put that, that on the cross, Jesus died not only for the sins of the world, but for my sin. He died so that I could live in right relationship with you. God, I receive the salvation. I receive this new life.
God, I ask you to, to make me into a new creation. You can pray that prayer right where you are.